welcome again to On Air, a podcast hosted by Instrument, a digital and innovation agency headquartered in Portland, Oregon, with offices also in New York. And now we are hiring remote. So we have folks that are working all across the new United States, which is very exciting. I am so happy and excited to bring you another episode of On Air. We started this podcast very focused on understanding the root issues and causes of systemic racism in the advertising technology and consulting industries, and also understanding how we can mitigate bias and ultimately do better for ourselves and for our clients. Today's episode is focused on mitigating racism and bias in research. And I'm very excited to bring this amazing panel to you today. And so I am going to let them introduce themselves. So first, I'd love to call on Shakaya Robertson to introduce herself. Hi, Jessica, and thank you so much for having me. I am uber excited about it. So my name is uh, Chikaya Robertson. I work with Accenture. I've been here for going on 15 years, um, but I've been doing research for, um, you know, close to 25 all told. Great. Morgan? I'm Morgan. My pronouns are she and her. Um, I've worked in varied strategy contexts and research has really always been a catalyst for that. So I'm part of the research and testing team here at Instrument. So that's really from discovery research to some iterative design testing. Um, we're really just shaping our version of user-centered design. So thank you, Jessica, for including me in this conversation. I'm really excited. Happy to have you. All right, Leslie. Hi, hello. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Leslie Marable. I am a seasoned digital marketing strategist, data storytelling researcher, and I've been in the game for more than 15 years. Um, my aim really is to support critical thinking and to empower others through the consumption of database information and better decision making, particularly now. I have my own consulting company, Beacon Rock on Tour, and I currently work with an agency called Ronstadt, and I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. And then last but not least, the only he, him joining us today. John, can you introduce yourself? I can. Yeah, I'm, I'm John Whaley. I run the research and testing team at Instrument. Uh, I've been here about two and a half years. And prior to that, I spent about 12 years in uh, market research, a lot of work in technology in general, um, kind of Silicon Valley tech sorts of things. Um, you know, human-centered psychology is where it all started. So I think that's where my interest started and, and where it continues. And uh, I'm excited to have brought this kind of work to Instrument and really fleshed it out here. So and also really excited to talk to all of you. It's going to be great. Awesome. Well, thank you. And again, thank you for taking the time uh, to be a part of the podcast today. I'm going to start us off with a softball question, but we're going to, I promise audience, we're going to get into some tough stuff later. Um, but I wanted to just start with, you know, how did you come to research? And I know I'm using research and I'm doing air quotes for those that can't see me um, because, you know, research and strategy and data and insights are really, truly core to all of our 
roles in any number of ways. Um, but how we get to it and how we sort of got into a role that combines all these things together is always pretty fascinating. For myself, um, I went to school in journalism. So there was always sort of this foundation of data and, and insights and facts. Um, and my first job out of college was at a tech startup, but it was focused on content. And we had a market research angle to us and we would do marketing research. And I I controlled a panel of 100,000 black and brown women, which was pretty amazing. Um, so that's kind of how I got into research or having research be a part of my day job. I'd love to quickly hear about you all and how you all came to research. So John, I'll start with you because you sort of teed up the question a little bit there. Cheating. Sorry. Um, no, it's fine. It's great. Uh, can you just share a little bit more about how you came to research? Sure. Yeah, I think um, I started uh, studying English and psychology, and I'm also really into music. And I think all of those worlds kind of congealed, like I said, in this world of of just interest in humans. And I um, stumbled, however, accidentally into actually the psychology of music, which is something I uh, researched in grad school, and then discovered marketing research. And that that's um, that was the beginning, I guess, of the commercial phase, if I can call it that. <laughs> and I, I've tried to keep that human bent, even as I've continued into, uh, you know, web design and, you know, testing and those sorts of things where it's um, always kind of John, the, you know, the human, the musician, the sociologist, the anthropologist, but also the researcher. So I try to keep all those, all those sort of people alive in me. I love it. I love it. We didn't ask you to bring your uh, trumpet today, but maybe on a no. later, <laughs> different kind of podcast. Jakaya, can you share a little bit about how you got into the amazing role where you're doing global studies? I mean, just really tremendous uh, work and impact. Yeah, thanks. Um, I do feel like I shortchanged myself at the beginning, so I'll add just a little bit more here. <laughs> so, you know, it's so funny because the more people that I have met, I'm going to say since the pandemic, I just discovered so many people in the area and I hear it just like John said. Well, I kind of happened into it. Well, I purposely, you know, purposely got into research um, when I was really a psych major in undergrad. I had just some phenomenal um, folks around me, some phenomenal professor, professors. And <clears throat> this is going to sound really shallow and bad, but I promise <laughs> you I'm a good person. So, <laughs> so my professor was like a world-renowned sexual harassment researcher, but she was an IO psych, so industrial and organizational psychology. And um, it was kind of when I started my master's degree program, I didn't know that there were over a hundred disciplines in psychology. I'm like, now what now? Well, which one makes the most money? Okay. So, so, so I'm like, I, you know, I can't be a struggling psychologist because I hear they don't make a whole lot of money. So the two things that I needed to do was get my PhD, right? And then I needed to get into a field that was more closely aligned, aligned to business. So the truth of the story is I specialize in industrial and organizational psychology, but my, you know, kind of along the way, I kind of, you know, focused and specialized in measurement and psychometrics. And we had this really cool opportunity to do um, a really deep dive into loyalty. So I have a really big focus toward the end, kind of that um, formed the basis of my dissertation, which was in 
um, consumer psychology. So I have had the just the tremendous blessing to do both organizational psych and consumer psych in every role that I've had since grad school. So I, um, I'm a glutton, I guess, for punishment because I chose this career and I absolutely love what I do every single day. Well, that's all right. I mean, to love what you do, but also get paid relatively yes. well to do it. You you, killed, you did it uh, both in one fell swoop. And I'm, I'm sensing a theme here with psychology and sociology and some threads here. Morgan, how about you? How about you share a little bit for us? Well, I think part of the reason I found myself in this particular role is because you, Jessica and John, took a chance on me and have given me a seat at the table um, but really from like a macro perspective, I think I found myself in this place because I kind of had this realization that as strategists and designers, um, we really can't make decisions that impact millions of people based on these shortcuts that just mm. kind of exist in our head. So my goal, if you will, is that we can give some of that power um, back to the people who are using these experiences that we're creating. And I think kind of like looking to protect their role or position in that process is something that's really important to me. So that's why I'm doing this for now, at least. Um, still pretty early on and interested to see where it takes me. That's great. Thanks, Morgan. And finally, Leslie, you have been in research and data and intelligence for a while, but you also had an amazing career even before that. So tell us a little bit about that and how you came to be where you are today. Yeah, thank you. I, I definitely resonate with everyone else. I also started in college in a psychology, uh, sociology background. I really enjoyed that ultimately decided, I don't want to do the PhD, um, worked outside of that for a while. And then after a while, I said, you know what, you've always enjoyed writing. I decided that I wanted to become a journalist, um, went to grad school, really enjoyed that, and then eventually landed as a professional digital and print journalist for national publications, including a money magazine and Entertainment Weekly. Really enjoyed that. And after a while, I realized that I gravitated to a lot of the data or the research-driven stories. Some of the editors would throw it to me and say, well, put Marable on that. Uh, and I really realized that I actually prefer that, you know, the tying the story together using the data, using the illustrations. And so from there, I made a concerted effort to choose roles uh, in media or startup companies that looked specifically at insights and data-driven information. For example, at Nielsen, when they had their early net ratings um, company. And from there, I transitioned to more specific hard analytics, ethnographies, uh, survey work. Um, so now I just feel, I look at myself as a data journalist. I really enjoy that journey of helping people to consume information, helping them to figure out what is most important for them to understand. And really it's about them and, and um, really advocating for themselves. So I'm really happy to be here. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's perfect. I think what you all have highlighted, even with the thread of the psychology, sociology, um, for me is that, um, you know, there is the hunger and desire uh, for continuous learning, right, in consuming of information. And how do you distill that down and sort of, um, and then push that back out? Um, I, I Knowing and having worked with you all personally, and in many ways, knowing also, too, that we're 
we're very thoughtful about that human-centered perspective about giving voice to the consumer or the customer to underrepresented um, communities. And so I think that, you know, we also bring that perspective and lens to the work, but we're also highlighting that people that come into research or are connected to research are very much uh, coming from different backgrounds and perspectives. And we know with that also comes bias in terms of how we approach our work and what that work ultimately impacts and ultimately what's going to show up in the marketplace and in the world. So let's take the audience on a little bit of a journey with us as we really dive into some of the key areas that sort of happen through research. And we know there's quant and qual. I know you all have a varied background with quant and qual and all of the things in between. So love for you to bring that to the conversation. But we're going to talk about what it means to brief uh, for research, uh, talk about, you know, designing the research plan, data collection, synthesis, publications, framing of the work. We're about to get into all of that. So let's start first. Let's start with the brief, right? A client, a customer is coming to you. We are trying to launch X product. We need to understand more about X audience. Uh, we are trying to make a pivot in the marketplace. We need to do some research. Sometimes those clients know what research actually is and sometimes they don't. Um, and so they come to you with a brief, a brief that might be just in their head or a brief that's actually sort of written down and well thought out. Let's talk about that first part of the process, right? Because whomever's crafted that brief is coming with a set of preconceived notions, preconceived biases. Um, we know that systemic racism is sort of weaved in threads all through all of that. Talk to me a little bit about when you get a brief, what are some of the immediate questions or what's that level of discernment that you go through as you are evaluating what is being asked? asked of you and what you think you need to do. Let me start with Chikaya. Thank you, Jessica. So <laughs> I think the, this is a big question um, because a lot of times people come with their own biases. It's just natural, right? As researchers, I think we've got to figure out how do we contain those biases so that when we deliver the end result, it is truly, um, it stands on what the research says and not how the researcher is trying to bias it, but, or, or, you know, determine what that looks like from a researcher standpoint. So for me, the first thing I like to do is, um, understand what is, what is the headline, right? You, you got this brief and you think you want to do X, but mm. you, you may really want to do Y. And I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed quant geek, right? I'm just going to say that right up front because I, <laughs> I do believe in data. I believe in numbers. I believe in, you know what I mean, um, regression analyses. And I think that if we can, if we understand really what, what is the ultimate hypothesis, and again, we're all social scientists, right? So I think we have to start there because it's really difficult to to do a good job if we don't know what we're testing for. I mean, mm -hmm. if you just dig into some of the details of research, you know, all of your stat testing is built based on the fact that you have a hypothesis, you know, whether or not you're trying to test, disprove or approve that hypothesis or prove that hypothesis is important. So I like to get into, you know, what is your hypothesis and what is the headline? Mm. Because for me, if I understand what the headline is, I can better serve 
your interests and your research needs more than you even thought to think. Because a lot of times we, you know, the people come with the brief and say, I want to do three focus groups and I want to, you know, just know X, Y, Z. Well, I think it's our job to say, well, have you considered maybe how race, if we're going to, you know, talk specifically about race and bias, have you considered how race might moderate that relationship? Or have Mm. you considered how one audience may kind of, you know, take what we're giving, if say it's a product, take what we're trying to develop differently. Maybe their context is differently. So I think the opportunity to influence and de-bias the process happens really early in the earlier. We can't we can't think about it on the back end when mm. we start analyzing the data by race. We have to think on the front end because there may be questions that we have to consider. Um, based on the audiences we're serving. So, you know, I think that conversation up front and really honing in on what that headline's going to look like. Because if I say, you know, 80% of everybody's going to love this product, they love it. But maybe there are some differences within that, that that mitigates the love that they have. And a lot of times that is as a result of even ethnicity or kind of racial differences that people just don't come to the table thinking about initially. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's great. Morgan, you've had the opportunity um, this past year to work on some global projects. Um, When you're getting a global brief, what are some of the things that have a global testing or audience or request and brief and it's going to have an impact? And you uh, talked in your uh, setup about being thoughtful around work that's going to ultimately impact millions of people. What are some of the questions that you're you are asking or even thinking about as your that brief comes in from one of these clients? I think some of the first questions are actually around um, our self awareness at Instrument. So, how much of this work are we going to take on totally independently, and where do we need to engage in market experts that can really authenticate the work, or just mm. you know help us know what we don't know? Yeah. And so I think that would be the big first piece, and making sure clients are receptive um, to those types of partnerships, and that we have the tools and the time to really onboard folks, not just to what we want to learn, but maybe the designs that we're creating. Um, because when we're putting together the questions we're going to ask, it's really no good, um, for me to make a mod guide and accept and expect that it's globally applicable. We actually also need those folks in the room kind of helping shape the questions that we're asking, seeing as they know what's most relevant in their market. I think part of working with clients on that too, is the question, what do you want to learn is never easily answered. Um, You kind of got to shake it out of people sometimes. And I've found um, that almost like a workshop conversation, if you will, at the kickoff can really get people thinking clearly, not only about what they want to know, but why do you actually want to know that? Um, Why is it valuable um, to the bigger picture? Um, So I think that's one part of it. The other piece um, is kind of the context. Um, Like Chikaya was saying, we can't come in and speak with folks about, um, you know, just what our brand is creating or, you know, it could even be the topic of, you know, there's a lot of brands we're getting briefs, at least that instrument where folks want to show up and speak on oppression and systematic um, racism and they want to really, you know, do it the right way. So they say, and often um, the second part of that brief 
is really not just what do they think of what we're creating relative to these topics. It's where's the consumer context on mm. this as a whole. It's a bit tone deaf um, to show up and just start creating conversations around this really, really small piece that your brand is responsible for. So I think um, zooming out and setting that context um, could be a really important place to start, both with yeah. clients and participants. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So let's then, uh, as we're continuing down this journey, Leslie, how do you, when you get that brief and it comes in, um, sometimes the clients are coming in and they have a predefined idea. And John, I, I want you to get way in on this too after Leslie. Um, you know, they come in and we're like, we want to do a, a survey and we want to talk to a million people. Okay, sorry, not happening. Um, right, or we want to do a bunch of focus groups because those are fun. And, you know, well, before it used to be, you sat in the room behind the wall and you had snacks and you could watch stuff, right? in the room, but we're all virtual now. So that's a little bit harder. But how do you how do you translate that brief asking those questions, obviously, into a research plan um, that feels um, that feels complete, that also feels equitable, right, as you're thinking about the audiences um, that you've been asked to go after, as well as the audiences you're probably advocating for as well? How do you go about sort of really getting to what is a good research plan? Yeah, that's that's really a great question. And I think that it's really an evolution. Um, I think there's a f uh, two pieces that I kind of look at, and they're both investigative and they probe. I think the initial thing that I like to do is figure out who's writing the brief, what is their role, and what is their goal, their agenda. Uh, oftentimes, I find that it's helpful because it will tell you um, not only what their expertise is, but will also give you a subtle clue as to, well, maybe there's, you know, what maybe they don't, maybe, what are they maybe not so good at, for example, or maybe there's a gap in their personal expertise that may be helpful for you to know, for example, about their gaps, because you can play to that. You could say, okay, maybe they're not an analytics person, so I need to do, I have to over evangelize and articulate why this project is important or why we might need to explore several different approaches. So I think number one, understanding who wrote the brief and why and, mm -hmm. and what is their agenda is really important to know. I think the other piece of that is, um, and this gets into the politics a lot and we don't have to go there, but essentially I think it's important to and know. And it's okay to go there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're, as, we're okay to go into the politics <laughs> a little bit because it oh, matters. Yes. It matters. It matters. It, yeah. It, it very much so matters. And I'm sure all of us have been in that situation where data is power, data is politics, and whomever owns the message owns the politics and the power, right? So, so it's helpful for me to probe a little bit to figure out, is this person the ultimate decision maker? Are they a participant? What is the hierarchy within their organization? Because ultimately, whoever is um, commissioning the project, if you will, they're the power center. So that helps set the stage. Now to the other pieces, what I like to know is once I get a sense of what the brief is, I like to get a sense of what are your business goals? And that could be different based on the role within the organization. If you're the marketing person, your business goal is going to be different than if you're sales or if you're doing research and um, research and development, for example. So I like to get a sense of what they think that that is. Um, and then based on that, come back and say, okay, um, it sounds like you're trying to reach these types of people. I might suggest that you use these different methodologies. 
as and also I'd also get a chance to get a sense of what internal research have they already done so I can assess that and incorporate that within a research and development plan. Yeah, that's great. John, love to get your thoughts on how like your approach to a research plan and and how you're also bal- balancing all the things, what can actually and physically be done uh, with the client's uh, needs, desires, and business needs. Um, and also, f- again, finding ways in which you feel like you're bringing equity to that process. Yeah, I think for, first I just kind of rubber stamp Leslie's points about knowing your audience before they think they know their audience. So there's this whole step where you have to know that they're coming in with some form of bias, however innocuous it is, and you have some too. I mean, we all live in our clothes, so we have to start where we start. So I think there is a moment where, uh, especially in a time crunch, this can be difficult, but there is a look at the macro that says, okay, you've told me that this is your audience, and they are this gender, and they are this age, and they are this ethnicity, but let me let me look a little higher with you uh, about sure that's your target, but what is your audience two and five and ten years from now? And is this product for them or is it for everyone? And there's there's a there's a ten thousand foot uh, picture that uh, I'll admit I think in in the kind of business world we push past a lot because we get the brief we say sure I can run three focus groups and then you go run three focus groups that's mm-hmm. that's the path of least resistance right we right. they asked me to and I can um, but there is a moment where you have to know them you have to know their their audience you know maybe better than they do and and take that moment and I, I don't want to set this up to be a fight between your clients that's that doesn't help anyone but but in order to kind of push this this whole idea of research past um, using the same folks to ask the same questions which we've done for the last hundred years we have to take that that moment to say could we do this better could we do this broader could we do this blacker? Could we do this? You know, th- there are a lot of questions we can ask in the brief uh, to prevent the kind of like garbage in, garbage out. Sure, I can prove your point. I-, I could prove any entrepreneur's point if he wants me to, but like, why? So um, I don't want to sound like a nihilist, but-, but there are ways to do research the right way. And there's ways to do research that you're asked to do. And I think I'd like to do the former more than the latter. Yeah. Chikai, I see you nodding your head a lot over there. Anything yeah. to add on that? I just have to say, John, you hit the nail on the head. As a researcher in this day and age, in this con- in this environment, you have to put your boxing gloves on and be ready to fight. Like, yeah. for real, for real. Because we can keep doing the status quo, but then we'll keep getting what we're getting and none of us will grow. And I think all of us want to do the right thing. But it is very difficult it's, you have to you have to decide that today is the day I'm going to fight, right? Because it is a fight. And sometimes <laughs> you just get tired of fighting and you want to take your gloves off. But to be a researcher and, and, and want to, now that I think there is a stage set, right? There is an appearance at least, and maybe there's more behind some companies, but at least there's an appearance of wanting to do the right thing. Like Morgan said earlier, people want to do the right thing. They really do. And but do you want to do the right thing because it looks like the right thing or do you want to do the right thing because you really want to know the truth? And so I think the fight is so important and and we've got to start to come together as a as a research industry, really as an insights industry so that we're not at least fighting each other. You know, and the fight is about how can we advance the truth that comes from a narrative that has not been told before now? 
And I think to di- to discern the difference between we want to do it because it makes us look good versus do it because it's the right thing. And oh my gosh, there's a whole world of knowledge that's opening up that we were never open to hearing before now. So I just, I really appreciate the point about that. And I, I really appreciate the point about what Leslie said. I'm sorry, I just got to mention it because I wrote it down. But whoever owns the message has the power. That is, you don't even, you can't even imagine how you struck my soul, Leslie, with that. Because, <laughs> because there's a narrative, you know, that we all want to tell, but who's writing your check? You know, that's the narrative. Ooh. And we have to balance between doing the moral thing and doing the thing that's going to keep you employed. And that's not a good place to be in. So I think to tie the two things together, if we're fighting in the right place and people's hearts and minds are in the right place, the power becomes less of a, um, of a barrier, right. And becomes more of a, a, a welcome agent of change. And so when we can get the power to be aligned with the truth, then I think we have an immensely powerful opportunity here with research. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And one of the things that was sort of, uh, you know, kicking around in my head, listening to all of you talk is also the truth can also equal money, right? In this capitalist society, right? You get a lot of clients that come to you and like, I want to just look at white suburban moms. Okay, well, you know, black suburban moms make a lot of money too, right? You know, I only want to sell this to rich white guys. Can So can you go research rich white guys? You know, it's a lot of uh, Latinx and Hispanic folks that have a hell of a lot of money that uh, would love your product and be willing to pay for it, White. So part of my tactics in the past have also been like, let me expand your pool or your data set. Let's look at more audiences because I guarantee you will be surprised and you might even potentially open up a new consumer demographic for you that will help you leapfrog your competition who are also only looking at white suburban moms or rich white guys that own yachts, right? And uh, give you longevity, viability, stability for years to come. And I think for me, I think we also as researchers that are uh, doing this work also have to say, you know, it's a little bit different from like the just the traditional sort of diversity, inclusion, equity and belonging because it's sort of morally and because, you know, well, you should do it because you should do it. But I'm like, there is a financial underlying benefit here. Right. Um, that I think is important for us. And I think that's why understanding to going all the way back to the brief and the person, the sort of owner, understanding those business needs is really important for us as well um, to tie that all together. So this is great. This is good. This is all the, the juicy, the juicy bits. Um, so let's uh, uh, let, let's dive in just quickly on quant, right? Um, and then we'll get to qual. But I want to dive in on quant. Shakaya, I know you're a quant nerd and John and, and Leslie, um, because, you know, quant can be everything from a really small sort of survey, small panel kind of thing to going very large. How how are you making decisions? And it, part of it goes back to that research plan. But even as you are putting the um, putting the panels together and uh, making decisions about who's in and who's out, how are you approaching that process? Anybody jump in who wants to start? <laughs> 
I'll let John start and I'll piggyback off him. Okay, I'll I'll try. I think I think the challenge with quant is that we are in a science of segmentation and in a sense discrimination. It we you have to start from a place that puts people in boxes, right? That's how zeros and ones and quantitative surveys work. If if I take a survey, I am this color, I am this age, I am this gender. It's it's just how it it categorizes me. And so we as survey designers and, and quantitative researchers have to understand that we've started by making boxes. And that's that um, there's a little inevitability there, but we can do that right. And we can also do that with open boxes. And, and there are ways to, you know, even this is really small, but, you know, we've started opening up our quotas to 40% male identifying, 40% female identifying, and then 20% fall into any other bucket. So if our client wonders, how do males like this? They have enough data there. How do females like this? They have enough data there. But then the other 20% falls out however it falls out, right? So, so we have opened a box in that way and let that category be what it will be. And, and it might end up being 49, 51. We, we don't know. But that, that is a quantitative way to allow gender to be the thing that gender is in the world. It is for real, right? We don't, we don't have to make those boxes with lids in a way. So there, there's, a, there's a way we have to design surveys knowing that we start with those boxes, and then we ask the questions. So that there's, there's both those steps have to be done with a ton of care, knowing that we've, we've introduced bias almost from the very the, the get-go. Um, and then at the end, we come back with those zeros and ones, the actual data, and we have to recognize where we started. So, so Jessica, where we started this was how, how important is the brief? And the answer is critically important, because on the end, all we have is a data set. And that, that's not telling us anything about bias. It's just zeros and ones. And that that feels pure, but it's only pure to the extent that the survey itself is designed well. So lots of cautions in there, but it can be done, I'll just say. Jakiah, what did I miss, Jakiah? Nothing, man. Let me just tell you, something. <laughs> I'm going to follow John every time, okay? So I think the boxes are critical. Like, we start out, right, with biases. Because we have to, because mm -hmm. the biases, I think, have to be built into the research design. Mm -hmm. And a good researcher knows that they exist. The question is, how do you limit them, right? And so I really love the box analogy. And, and it's so funny because I would, I would bet that most of the researchers out there would, would set this up and, and there's a little bit of, well, I prefer not to say what my gender is. And then what do we do? We, we take them out of the sample, right? Like they don't exist. Yeah. So I really love the fact that you say we let them in and then we actually going to research them. We're going to analyze them as well, not just identify them so we can remove them from the sample because that's what, there are real people that sit in those boxes. And I think what we have to be more comfortable, even me, what we have to be more comfortable doing is understanding the context of that other box and understand what challenges you know, how to, what is their context? You know, mm -hmm. how does the product development differ because they sit in a different box that we're just not as comfortable or used to talking about. Mm. And in today's day and age, there's so many freaking boxes, right? There's too many boxes, mm -hmm. but I love how you did that because I'm guilty of putting, identifying folks in that box and then saying, Ooh, it's not the male column or the female column. It's a different column. Where do I put them? Are we going to rebase the sample and take them out? I mean, it's a real, like, these are challenges that researchers are dealing with every single day. And I think we're starting to get more comfortable 
identifying or learning what the common language is to identify the boxes, but are we still, are we really now taking the boxes and analyzing them and trying to understand what does it mean to sit in this box? So yeah. I think quant is so critical because at, 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 at best, we're trying to, as psychologists, right, as, as behavioral scientists, as researchers, we're trying to predict what people are going to do. We're trying to predict what they're going to like and how they're going to think and feel. So quant to me is the tool and the instrument that allows us to do that. So if we don't get the boxes right, then there's no way we can do it effectively, right? Yeah. And so for me, it's just such a powerful tool in our research toolkit, the quant piece, because it tells the story of everyone, as long as it's done right, um, versus kind of some of the, you know, the qual techniques, which I'm sure Leslie and Morgan are going to talk a little bit more about. Yeah. And that that's so great. I love, um, you know, part of this is dropping knowledge and giving advice to each other and to those out there. I love the idea of let's start to open up some of these boxes and allow people who identify as trans or who identify as non-binary to be able to be counted and to have an impact. Act, right. Um, and even as I think about race, we are still very much in just the boxes of the census data. Right. You have to dist. I'm like, what box is Kamala Harris checking? We know she considers herself to be African-American or black. Her father was Jamaican. Right. We forced her to check boxes. But she also is of in, uh, Asian descent as well. Right. And so how do we make sure we don't disclude a Kamala Harris or a Barack Obama because they check more than one box? And many of us check more than one box. And we will see when the service census data comes out, you know, in the next six to 12 months that there are a lot more people checking a lot more boxes. Um, so I love that idea of uh, pushing our clients and pushing ourselves to create more open boxes. Uh, so let's hop over to the quant side of the house. As we think about those more smaller and intimate settings, as we think about more targeted um, and focused and sometimes can be, you know, everything from what type of cereal did you eat this morning for breakfast, you know, to uh, which which leg do you put your pants on every morning, right? Like can be very personal. Um, let's talk about sort of uh, as you're preparing and thinking about both selecting audiences and Morgan, you touched on this globally a little bit around, um, you know, if we're interviewing people in Japan or in another country, is having someone from that culture or perspective going to have a more and will that in influence the the outputs that you get? So I'd love to uh, hear. I'll start with you, Morgan, and then Leslie, you can then uh, add on. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about how you are approaching the questions, the focus groups or even some of those one on one conversations? Definitely. Um, the answer is yes, it does influence, <laughs> definitely influence <laughs> the feedback you're getting back. I really think um, the planning phase, um, when you're preparing a mod guide, if you will, is the most important part. If you're not getting it right in the planning phase um, with screening and recruitment, kind of like 
John and Chakaya just touched on, um, you know, there's no point in even moving forward. And so really when I'm developing a mod guide, I'm trying to create space um, to learn from both a participant's intentions and their actions. So it's not just how they're completing certain tasks. It's really about getting a sense of their motivations or that underlying relationship with the subject matter. And I think part of doing that is providing a safe space for people to share their perspectives and really deciding which questions am I going to ask? What order are they going to be in? Am I going to give them that floor time to set their context and speak on this subject independently of whatever design instrument might have cooked up that we want to share with them right after? And I think really maintaining self-awareness throughout that process. How is this impacting people? How are they responding? Can they even speak credibly on this topic? Do they want to speak on this topic? And knowing when to adjust accordingly. Um, I think when you put it in a global context, I think where um, a learning for me quite recently was, you know, you come up with the mod guide, you brief in the local moderators and um Really, you know, we shouldn't be moderating um, conversations that are about a localization, you know, strategy at scale globally. We just shouldn't. You need people that live in those countries and that understand the nuance of the culture to really be um, really be the face of it. Um, right. Pulling that out of consumers. And so I think the learning for me was not just briefing on the mod guide, but really taking the time to onboard to the design work and really let them know that there's space here to add questions. There's space here to totally remove questions um, if this isn't making sense. And also the awareness of the time that we're in and how the types of projects we take on and the types of questions that we ask um, or even just, you know, the folks we're doing research with might have to adjust accordingly. Like yeah. maybe um, we were only including folks, um, you know, that that had a full-time or a part-time job. Well, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we need to open that up and also maybe let in some folks that are recently unemployed. Um, now the clients want to have a conversation about how some fundraising portal they're making um, does X, Y, and Z. Well, first, um, let's talk to folks about do they care about this topic? Do they want to invest in this topic? And so really for me, it's just the ever-changing context of yeah. line by line being in the conversation and what's going on in the world and just staying in tuned with both of those things. Oh my goodness. I have uh, done several uh, talks around that macro context, right? Like we as researchers, we want to operate in a vacuum and you sit and you answer, right? But there's so much other things going on in the world that are impacting even us as researchers every day. Well, we're showing up at our jobs in our homes. We're all in our respective homes, right? Uh, and I'm letting some other stranger in my home as I'm interviewing, right? Like there are so many things that are impacting and, and affect um, uh, affect us. And I think we like to think of research in a vacuum and, and it's not. And I love um, that perspective of being malleable and needing to adjust or shift if you have to, um, uh, because that makes sense. Leslie, let me let you add on to this. <laughs> I am so loving this conversation. This is fantastic. Um, I, I, I really wanted to add in to what uh, Morgan um, had to say, uh, primarily from the qualitative experience. I think as researchers and analytics people, we're really, we're really like, um, 
we're, we're navigators, we're interpreters, if you will, and we're, we can help to push clients, whether they be in, inside or external, to try new things. And so, mm-hmm. for example, I've had several um, experiences where there was a traditional client and they're used to doing the traditional survey. and We've always done it this way. And then you're thinking, well, you say that your your challenge is this. This is the problem that you want to solve. And these are the audiences that you want to reach. Have you considered A, B, and C? And I've actually had the pleasure of being able to sway a client, whether it be internal, external, from what they wanted to do and what they said they're going to do into something new. And I think that's really important that that we do, that we actually steer and we guide clients Mm. as well. Mm. The other thing that I think is important is really the role. When you look at more of a qualitative experience, you really have the the opportunity to influence diversity and inclusion. So when you look specifically at ethnographies, and I love ethnographies or focus groups, this is really when you can help the client understand why diversity inclusion is so important because you're actually talking to people who are going to look like the people that you're trying to reach, right? Yeah. And so a lot of those inherent biases of like, this is what our client looks like, it kind of melts away when they start to see that people are, are not that, that little box or persona that they've created perhaps out of thin air, that they actually look like different people, right? And to your point earlier, Jessica, that you know, they do have the income, right? And, and, and so you, you can suddenly kind of get them out of their comfort zone and their biases by having that actual human being and that physicality. The other piece that I wanted to, to talk a little bit about is as it relates to the role of the analytics or data person or researcher, I've been in a number of pitches or discovery meetings where, you know, somebody, you know, let's say the salesperson that a biz dev does all the talking and really, I felt that it really wasn't instructive, mm. but really when the analytics or the researcher was in the room, they were able to probe and get far more impactful information, which really helped the agency derive, you know, really great insights or a really great research plan. So just wanted to shout out to those analytics people that, you know, push to make sure that you're in that pitch, push to make sure that you're in that discovery session with the stakeholders, because you really are going to bring that value that extra dollars and cents that was not intended before. Oh yeah. John and I have had lots of conversations <laughs> about <laughs> yeah. bring the researcher to the conversation. Jakaya, you had something to add? Go ahead. Yeah. I, I just want to add this. It seems like one somebody told me once that, you know, common sense isn't so common. <laughs> let me let me let me just <laughs> let me just say this thing. And this is the thing that I keep seeing over and over and over again. Because Leslie, when you say we're translators, man, oh man, are we ever. Yeah. Let me give you an example. And I'm sure everybody's heard this. And and with this environment again, right, the the backdrop of these pipeline discussions, we can't find black. Let me just so if you're trying to recruit at the HBCU, right? Okay. Now, I didn't go to an HBCU. I didn't. I went to what we call a PWI, a predominantly white institution. Yeah. But don't send the white lady, right, to go to recruit at the HBCU. Yeah. Like, when you explain that, it's so critical for you to understand. You might not be able to connect. Like, you can't translate. So when I think about that, and it, it doesn't say all of your recruiters need to be black, but it there is a there is a connection, a language. There are some questions that I'm going to ask a black recruiter 
that I probably don't feel so comfortable asking a white recruiter. So right. if we can, if we can, if we can sign up for that thinking, now think about a, a, a research group, right? A, a moderator going into, let's just say, I know that there is a challenge with, um, this is a real problem with black teachers, right? There's not enough black teachers. And the research says that if you, if you want to encourage and motivate and reduce children that are black, right, from dropping out of school, you need to have a, a same race teacher. So if it's an, you know, a Latinx child, child, you need, you know, a Latinx teacher is going to reduce that. So, so when you think about who do you need to send into the room to talk about these issues with black teachers about why they're not staying in the field or what can get me motivated to stay in the field. And then the surprise when it says, well, you might want to get a black moderator because there's probably issues at play that a white moderator isn't going to understand to ask, right? There's just a very different, there's different things that I'm going to even share because I know that perhaps, and and I'm not picking on you, Morgan, but if you send Morgan in a room to talk about my blackness and she's supposed to go and interpret that to the folks that are making the decisions, you're going to lose some context. You're going to lose some things in the process. And I think we have to be more careful about how important it is, just like a, a, a black, you know, medical doctor. There's things that my black medical doctor is going to connect with me differently on than maybe my white medical doctor. And I, and I, and I hate to even go here and say this, but it's so culturally important to have that alignment in life. And then when you think about having that alignment in research, it's the same exact thing. So how can you truly extract the knowledge and tidbits and understanding when you can't necessarily connect with your audience, right? You can't connect with the person that you're trying to glean all these motivations and things that we have to glean out of it. So I say all that to say, even though I'm not like, blah, I don't like qual, like don't make me do qual research, please. But, <laughs> but if you do, I think those of us who are making the decisions about the research team that does it or the moderator that does it, we have to understand that it's so important to send into the ground the people that can understand who's on the ground and then use that to your benefit. I mean, you deserve that. You pay for the research, do it right. And I think we just we're still not quite there yet when it comes to making sure all the right people are in the room. And it's just it just I, it floors me how that isn't just a thing that we should know. You know it, it's just something that we should know, but we don't know. But it's so important. Um, and I know I just wanted to add that, you know, you, you're not going to get that kind of flavor out of a survey, so to speak. But it's so critically important to have that matchup when you're in a qual situation. So, yeah. Especially, I just had if, to add that. No, that's great because if you're not talking about cereal, but you're really trying to get into some of those nitty gritty topics, um, you know, we even talk about in in work and in our environments, how do you create safe spaces, right? Spaces for people to be able to share more. So if you're selling cereal, you're probably fine. But if you're trying <laughs> to get to something a little bit deeper or closer yeah. to home, um, yeah, having that cultural relevance, I think is absolutely important. 
So let's take us then to the end of our journey. And I know we are, are getting close on time. Um, and I, let's talk about that narrative and storytelling, right? So we've gone through this journey of talking about the brief and the audience and the plan. And now we've conducted qual and quant and all this good, yummy goodness of data that we're now getting in. And now we're obviously responsible for gleaning insights and observations um, that'll ultimately be the catalyst for what our clients and our people do next. Um, and there's always a narrative, a story, right? And we've talked about a lot. You guys have already, we've been talking about uh um, the narrative than the story. And I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes it's like reality versus fake news, right? In terms of what we're trying to push forward. Uh, so let's do a quick round robin of, um, you know, how do you do your best to maintain the integrity of the brief and what you've been trying to achieve with what sort of that final final finding or sort of output in that narrative and story is. Uh, Wiley, I'll start with you first. I was going to say Leslie should start, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll go very briefly. I feel um, like there's a lot of plus one and I, I, I just think she's on. better at this than I am. But I, I, um, I think that the key at this point, I'll, I'll start where we ended, is context. So if you've been on the journey, if you were part of the brief, if you know the client, if you know the audience, if you've been through the creative, if you've seen the things that have gone into research, at this point, you should know. Uh, and the, you know, the question is, can you even at this point get over the biases? But you should then know what the story becomes. So, so it's, it's a bit of a natural evolution, though. Again, you need to be sure that your, your blinders are off at this point and you're not so deep in the work that you can't see some kind of angle that you didn't anticipate. Um, I, I, I consider those moments the kind of the reward for having done good work. Um, and, and I'll admit that this isn't, for me, kind of the most exciting part. And that's why I want to hear Leslie's input on this, because I love getting good data. I love the work that it takes to go get good qual and quant data. And there are times when I look at strategists, even strategists at Instrument, who take that and take that story and then make it something. And I think that's, it's, that's kind of a little magic to me. And, and you know, my ideal is I can get them great findings and great data. And uh, you know, my, my strong suit, and I'll throw it soon to, to Leslie, but isn't then taking that to what does it mean for your website? What does it mean for your product? What does it mean for your people? Um, mm. But if you've done well, it's not so hard, but Leslie, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely agree. I, I, what I was, I was thinking of is, is really complimentary. And one of the things I thought is, you know, I'm going to tell you what you really need to know, not necessarily what you want to know. <laughs> and so, and that, you know, sometimes that's a, that's, that could be political, right? It could be, you know, how deep do I go? And I think that's why I think initially it's important to the degree that we as data and analytics and researchers can have that relationship with the, with the brief writer or the stakeholders or the clients so that when you have to deliver sometimes unpleasant news or news that they didn't anticipate, they can absorb that and they can marinate on that. But I still think in order to service the client well, you really have to tell them what they need to know because then they can learn from that experience and, and move on with that. Um, I also think that it's really good to base any of your decisions uh, or whatever your narrative based on data driven. In other words, it could be according to what our quant research said, blank, 
according to the ex, you know, according to the anecdotes that we derive from our 50 panelists or our 50 um, participants, it's really important to, to constantly tie it back to here are the numbers mm-hmm. and here's what the people said. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you say persona, if you say Bob the persona, then it becomes this vague generality of what they think or what they thought versus you know, Jessica said this or John said that. Um, I also find that when you tie it in, when you're delivering this information, let's say uh, the brief writer is Susan. And if you say Susan, you know, as you said at the previous meeting and you really tie it back to what they said, it's a reminder that, yes, I was heard that you listened Mm. to me, Mm. that number one, number two, that you answered my question and you're validating, you're validating that you heard me. And even if your results are different than what I thought, you feel like they feel like they've been listened to. And I think there's a piece there that's, I can't really describe it, but they, it, they have to feel listened to as well and validated no matter what you're delivering. And I think that's important. That's great. Morgan? I think when it comes to kind of, you know, running that synthesis, I try to keep myself in check by erring on the side of more participant quotes rather than my own copy if I'm doing qual work. So I really kind of challenge myself to tell that story using the words um, that real participants used and that made it kind of come together in my head. Um, Because really, I didn't just come up with it. So as little as I can do to really shape that is important. I'm just the organizer of the information. I'm not necessarily shaping the narrative. And I think by pulling as many quotes um, and actual verbatims that we heard into that is really just the most effective way to get after it. So that's just a thing I do with myself to keep us aligned. I love it. Takaya, you've done a lot, a lot in your career alone at Accenture. How, how are you that sort of, uh, you know, final phase, the last mile? How are you approaching that? Yeah, well, let me just say that I am the least creative person in the entire planet. Okay, I'm just <laughs> don't, like I am like, just don't come to me for that piece. Um, and I think one of my challenges, because I am so hard in the zeros and the ones, like John explained it, because I'm so black and white when it comes to data. Um, I, I I did I was challenged for a long time with really understanding how to best tell a story. And I'm still, you know, I've been at it for a long time, but because I'm so much in the weeds, I, that that was probably I think the last thing to develop um as a professional to be totally honest. Um but I think that if you don't have the right story, everything we did up until that falls apart. And I think the story is so critical. And I believe when John said, it's magic what they do back there in creative. I don't even know how they figure all that out. Like, it's like, man, you guys just wave some wands and then voila, this research I did just looks so much more exciting. So it is a skill. And I think one of the challenges is that we are looking at data and we're not always looking at the implication of the story and what, how does it feel like? And I think when we start to integrate more video into the research process and we can put a, a face to a quote and, and an emotion to a quote that, that just, it just brings a whole nother level. So I really like the fact when, you know, we start doing less 
PowerPoints, right? And more video and more expressive insights. And I think that just takes the research to a whole nother level. So I say nothing, you know, garbage in, garbage out. I think somebody said that earlier. But if you don't have that story, man, it falls. I'm literally working on some a project now where trying to under get the human element into the research, right? So that the message gets through. It's yeah. difficult. It's really yeah. it's really hard to do. And I think even still, um, trying to get that right is the probably one of the hardest parts of the process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, I I appreciate that. And as a strat- one of those strategists who uh, helps to turn some of those data and the insights into magic, <laughs> it takes Man. a long time to get there. I mean, it takes it takes years of working and practicing and and partnering with others. And I think also too, you know, our industries and our roles have evolved to be. Um, community and collective storytellers, right? It's not just what my POV and my perspective is, which is a lot of what all of you have talked about, especially Morgan. And so we are collectively saying, what does this mean for us and in, in understanding the impact? So um, I appreciate all that. Well, we are almost out of time. I wanted to ask you all one final uh, question. We like to try to, and even though we've talked about some of the challenges and problems and biases around research and design and data and now ending with the narrative and and storytelling and, um, you know, really talking about also how uh, bias and systemic racism shows up in research. I'd love to ask you, you know, what's your hope um, for the future as you think about research, as you think about the evolution of research, um, especially as we think about how we support and amplify and include underrepresented communities. Um, So I'd love to hear about, you know, sort of what your hope is for that. Um, I will start and uh, give you guys some time to marinate. Uh, You know, my hope is really, truly, as I think about all of the, the these moments that have become a movement, I've said that a lot around diversity, inclusion and equity and belonging. And, you know, for me, I need more of us in research. I need more of us helping to be a part of the briefs and the plannings and the research and the plans. I want the kids in college that are majoring in psychology and sociology that are kids and and young people of color um, to recognize one, that you can make pretty decent money, right, Chikai, in research, (laughs) but two, right, Morgan, you can influence and change the lives of thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of people um, by making sure those voices are heard. So that is my sort of hope for the future as I think about research. Um, anybody can go first. I'll jump in. (laughs) I think, um, for starters, my hope is that we could be vigilant and intentional about when we're engaging with participants, especially during this time. And for clients, I really think it's important that we continue to have conversations with folks um, that aren't from a marketing background because we need to bring a reality check to this advertising dystopia that we live in. But more importantly, every time we launch a study, we need to be talking about representation. And that's for both researchers and clients. So if the folks that are conducting the study have not been transparent about who they're talking to, and if that sample is diverse, we need to be asking for receipts because it does affect the results. 
Um, yes, so receipts. I am all about. I'm gonna do a finger snaps over here. <laughs> Ask for the receipts. Right, love yes. that, Morgan. <laughs> and that is my final two cents. <laughs> Thank you, Morgan. Leslie. You know, I, I I have like different approaches, but I think where I'm going to land is this. I really think we have our own mantra for the, you know, analytics researcher point of view. I think, number one, it's important to morph and ebb and flow with as the market or industry dictates. Um, I think, too, what John said earlier, sometimes it's a little bit too regimented. And so if we can in the future kind of be more fluid and, and, and ebb and flow as the industry ebbs and flows, as the market changes, I think that's one thing to be hopeful for. And I think the other thing is, is what I consider my personal mantra, and I think is really important as a researcher and a data analytics person, is never let someone else define who you are or who you will be. You are the architect of that journey. And if you can do that, you can better serve your clients and your brands. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Leslie. Chikaya. Man, let me just, Morgan <laughs> asked for the receipts. Let me just say, she's going to be my new my new research BFF and ally. I love that. Man, I love it. Um, my thing is, and you all can probably imagine, I'm a handful, um, but I think you got to be authentic. Mm. Like, when we lose the authenticity of who we are in our work, it is a wrap, right? So, and not enough of us are authentic. Mm. And being authentic, you can probably lose your job, but I think <laughs> you, you, you gotta, you have to, you have to let people, so we talk about differences, right? Yeah. But, but we're afraid to show them. So how can we, how can we be upset at leadership about not embracing differences when we're hiding ours. And so what I had to learn early on is that the authenticity and being intentional, that's my favorite word of all time, like being intentional in everything that you do. And I think that if as long as our leaders, because leaders are influencing society, right? If they are open to understanding that there is something else other than the table that I'm used to sitting around, we are just generally going to be better off because there is truly... A benefit in diversity. And, and, I, and my hope is that it becomes standard operating procedure and not a request on the back end to say, did you, did you, do you have a representative sample of, mm -hmm, of all the different mm -hmm, ethnicities? Mm -hmm. Did you consider um, including these questions? Like that should be standard. The question shouldn't be, did you include? Because it's usually, oh snap, we didn't include. Yeah. So that should be standard. And once yes. we once we start doing the research to uncover these important things as a standard, now we can elevate Maslow's hierarchy. Now we can elevate to something that then we have a conversation. But if we don't have the mechanics, we're never going to get to the conversation and all the nuances that we've just talked about today. So that's my hope, that it becomes standard operating procedure to make sure that our research is set up to identify and be inclusive with not only our samples, not only the people doing the research, but the leadership who guides the narrative. Love it. Oh, that's great. John, I don't Ooh, know how you're going to follow I that, brother. I am intimidated, officially. <laughs> um, no, the, the only thing I can think to do is sort of put together Jessica and Chikaya's points, which is basically recognize where sort of research training is and research experiences. And I can see myself 15 years into my experience on a call with this set of people. And I look back at myself and say, okay, am I doing this right? Have I been doing this right? Can I do this better? Did I learn, you know, I'm, I'm a decent researcher, I'll say that, but like, I can evolve. There are things I need to learn. There are things I need to think about. And I think if, if someone is 18 or 20 or 25 or 30 or whatever they are in their career, 
if this becomes standard operating procedure, to your point, we're all better off. This, you know, this conversation 10 years from now is about much smaller minutia and we're just fighting the last little fight because right now we still have a big fight. So um, there's our uh, little optimism at the end. I love it. Well, that's what we like to end on. And I don't ever want anybody to tell me that researchers can't talk, but who boy, I mean, we are <laughs> clocking in on this podcast today, but I, I want to authentically and intentionally say thank you, Chikaya. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, John, for your time, for your love, for digging deep in all the things. These are the conversations that we should be having every day. And we don't, right? We don't. And these are the conversations that we should be having with our teams, with our leaders, with our clients. uh, Because to that point, Chikai, of uh, allowing differences and showing differences, if we're not talking about these challenges and these problems, they will persist. Um, And so I am so thankful for the time and effort and you all just sort of sharing a little bit of your soul and also a little bit of your nerddom with me today. This has been great. Um, And I look forward to hopefully having all of you back more in the future. And I hope for our audience listening that This was insightful and helpful, maybe a little bit fun as well. So thank you all again for the time. And that is a wrap.